If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com/audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com/audio. That's carshield.com/audio. Hey there, you've wandered onto the VUC, a weekly conference produced by IP Communications and VoIP Community. We would like to thank Simwood.com. Simwood can turn you as a developer into a telco. Our host at PBX is from Onsip.com. You can get a URL that people can click to call you at Onsip.com slash GetOnsip. Speaking of SIP, we use the best PSTN and SIP conference bridge in the world, ZipDX.com. Our website at VUC.me is on Bluehost.com. And thanks to Voxbone for our world local rate dial-ins. That is correct. And we're back for 2017, stronger than ever, ladies and gentlemen, in our, not that there are any ladies, unfortunately, in our 10th year VUC, VUC.me on the web. And while I'm looking for the camera, I am going to put uh, our guest Richard online so he can say hello to everybody. He's returning guest. Richard. Hello. Thank you for having me on. It's been a while. It has. uh, And I I wanted to uh, reiterate something that I told you privately. As soon as I find my camera, I will do that. Uh, Maybe this will work. Yeah, that's good enough. VUC 627. Um, I uh, got the idea to invite you. It it's, was a quick improvised invite, too, because we happen to have a time free. And why did I do that? Because your newsletter um, just hit at just the right point, um, because you did a, re, a reflection on 2016, and it wasn't the typical market speak. It was really good. And I mean, for people who send these things out, I mean, mostly I think people just click and delete them uh, these are generally so poorly done. Now, you guys, we've signed up. I think everybody here has probably signed into it uh, to get news of the, your project. And this thing was just a good surprise. I liked it. And that's the basis of our, uh, of our segment this week because I want to hear about this news live from the horse's mouth, as it were. <laughs> at, least it's, at least at the right end of the horse, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. That could be worse. So let's, uh, before we do that, though, let's remember who the company is, who you are, and what the camera's about. And then we go to the news 2016. So we are Sub2R. Sub2R is a startup in San Francisco. We are completely self-funded by the three founders. Uh, we started this company as a Actually, we started 2R1Y, which is a 3D imaging company, and we needed a camera that would give us the ability to have complete access to every aspect of the imaging pipeline. Couldn't find one, so naively we said, what the heck, we'll go build our own camera. And we did, and it was a long and and very difficult path. But once we had the camera built, then we started posting videos on YouTube of what the camera could do. There was a lot of activity. A lot of people liked it. Um, then YouTube opened up their support for 1080p and 4K. And our the people that create the image sensor came back to us and said, hey, you did a great camera with the 720p. Can you do one with a 1080p 4K chip? And we should, said, sure. And so we spun the camera off into its own company. And we foolishly thought, okay, it only took us 90 days to build the first, actually the second camera. We should be able to do this one fairly quickly. Um, Famous last words. So what we try to do with the newsletter is we have a lot of people that have a great interest in our camera, which is fabulous. And we want to be honest with them. We want to tell them where we are, what we're doing, the pitfalls that we run into, the challenges we have, and, you know, the successes we have along the way. There are a lot of people that are sharing our experience and we want to be open and honest with them because it's that community that's going to allow us to be successful when the camera finally goes into production. Let me just interject that, uh, first of all, under me, under my beautiful face here, is an (laughs) URL you can go to to look at the camera. 
Um, I'm a little confused sometimes about the two names because they both have a digit in them. They're a little, uh, I don't want to say obscure, but they're weird. But on the other hand, um, they're ultimately searchable. So that's, that's something. Um, well, how do we get, can, can you get to, can you sign up for the newsletter that I was uh, so, um, I can't think of the word now, but I, that I liked a lot. Can you sign up for that at this URL, the sub yes. uh, 2R? Uh, there's a there's a reserve button, and the reserve button allows you to either reserve a camera or just ask for the newsletter. There's no obligation to reserve, but if you do, we use that to understand more about our community, and we ask you know, what kind of what what resolution you want, what are you going to do with the camera, uh, things like this. Because what we we do is we then use that to tailor the camera to make it more useful for our community. Those people that reserve when we do go live will get a discount off the list price for being, you know, good supporters and fans of us from day one. Um, and we really we, we view that group of people who have reserved as very important to us. We have some of them. We have these ongoing conversations about the projects they're on. And it's really exciting. I mean, we have one company that is using our camera to watch ice crystals grow on refrigerator coils. And it looks like I just froze again. Yeah, well, you spoke of refrigerator coils. So what happened? Yeah. <laughs> uh, hang on. There we go. For some reason, Google Hangouts doesn't like me. Um, what browser? Uh, I'm on Chrome. Yeah, well, some people would submit that uh, that may be part of the reason. Uh, there are people who say that Firefox works better for Hangouts. Anyway, that's closing that parenthesis. You should have done that. So anyway, um, it's fun for us to understand what people want to do with the camera. And it's also exciting for us because we like to then, when we talk to potential investors, share these these unique applications and that's that for us is exciting. So it's a it's a good tool for us. Um, so so let's circle back on that. What do people want to do with the camera? What are what are kind of I mean, there's always these centrist applications for which people do lots of things with cameras. But what are the edges? What are some of the more interesting ones? Yeah. So from a marketing standpoint, you sit there and say, well, gee, most of the people that come to us want to live stream video. They want to be content creators. They're gamers who want to stream. They're YouTube broadcasters, this kind of a thing. But then you realize that the only place you can really see any of our work is on YouTube. So that's sort of a, a biased marketing sample. Some of the more interesting things that we've gotten is um, people want to use our camera for deep sea ROV exploration. There are people that want to use it for sports analysis. Uh, we have one guy, because we allow you to gen lock multiple cameras together, they want to use it for a 360-degree looking-in type of video where you maybe have 40 or 50 cameras in a circle surrounding a sporting event or a, um, or a music venue, and then you can stitch all the cameras together. Having that gen lock is key for being able to do image stitching because you want to know that every single frame is captured at the exact same moment in time. Uh, we have people that want to do security applications with it, astronomy, you know, it's all of the things that sort of drift on the outer edges of of the mainstream market for, for what people want to do with this. Um, we had one application on it that was really interesting. Unfortunately, we weren't ready for it. Was There was a major clothing, high-end clothing manufacturer that wanted to incorporate these into virtual mirrors. So you could go into their store, you could put on a suit, you could strut in front of this this mirror on a virtual runway, they would take that high definition image and then put it on the big screens in Times Square so that, you know, your friends can see you up there on the wall. So, I mean, it, it's fun because the camera can be, can be adapted to a lot of different applications. And that's one of its strong points that we are really eager to see what people do with it. Cool. Cool. And, and, um, it's interesting that you say that sporting event thing. I have some knowledge of that coming from a broadcast background. Um, you would not believe how complicated that was to do the first time Fox did it. I think it was a Super Bowl some years ago, uh, positioning cameras all the way around the stadium and then using 
what were then SGI supercomputers to do all of the stitching. Uh, but it's become smaller and smaller and cheaper and cheaper when you're really talking about if they can do it with your camera and, um, you know, put some smarts in the camera, it, it's sort of possible to do it for something that isn't a special event, then it becomes productized, yeah. which is uh, excellent. Well, that's one of the things that we've designed into this thing is we don't know what people want to do with it. So we're going to make it as adaptable as possible to to allow people to do some really creative things. And one of the cool aspects of it, I don't know if you can see it here. There you go. This is the camera board. The camera board is interchangeable. So as we go forward and introduce new sensors, you don't buy a new camera. You just buy a new camera board. Just pop it out, pop a new one in. Um, this would allow you to, for instance, if you wanted a high frame rate camera, if you wanted a VR version, which is what we're working on right now, you simply, you don't buy all the, the camera. You simply buy the new camera board, unplug it, plug a new one in, and now you have a totally different camera. And all the all the adaptation for the new camera board is done in firmware, which you can then download or write yourself onto the FPGA. Does the modularity extend back into the um, into the rest of the camera? Because the FP, newer, faster FPGAs come out periodically and one might want to upgrade that but i accept that that might be more difficult we are looking into the ability to swap out fpgas it's it's expensive from a space and cost standpoint because you have to then have a carrier that has the high speed connections that will allow you to swap out the the um fpga the board will accept multiple sizes of FPGAs right now, but only on a board run. And we're, we're kind of wrestling with that because the current FPGA vendor we have right now has a very powerful but very expensive FPGA. We're looking at an alternative, and the company that's offering us the alternative is willing you know, to work with us in putting their most powerful one in there. So it'll be a while before that one gets obsoleted. Um, so we're trying to build in future expandability into the camera as opposed to making it just barely enough for it to work today. Um, I think economically that's when we start, that's the best way to go. Trying to build in versatility for everybody is then you end up with this huge giant thing, which is difficult to manage. Um, one of the changes we hope to make down the road is to make the secondary output a module. So right now you have a choice of uh, USB 3 or Gig E. But some people want HDMI, some people want Alpine Ridge, some people want, you know, an optical connection. We're looking into, in future designs, making that secondary output modular. So you can select what output uh, you want the video signal to come in. A, yeah, um, I want Giggy and I want a SIP interface. Go ahead, Tim. Sorry. <laughs> well, um, kind of heading in slightly in that direction. Something that floated across uh, my um, subject matter over the Christmas was um, was the ability to somehow um, ensure the validity of uh, the un uneditedness of, of video. So, you know, some kind of... Um, digital watermark that allows you to, to, to check that this video was untainted um, and hasn't just been kind of photoshopped up or, or whatever. I think increasingly, particularly, you know, with this happened with stills already, it's quite difficult to tell whether that's a real still or it's Photoshop, but I think the video that's going to be going to become difficult. Um, if you look at, uh, like I watched Star Wars and, um, and the, the, the ghost acting is really scary. Um, uh, what's the man's name? The, the dead actor who featured in it. Um, that's you know he he's they they just basically digitally manipulated him the the old footage and cut him together doing things that he'd never done, um, which is kind of scary. And I think think so. So anyway, the question here is 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 there a role in the FPGA of uh, like a kind of FPGA that digitally watermarks the the data so that you know that it's genuinely untouched since, you know, since it left the sensor. Well, that's one of the things you can do 
with the FPGA. And the beauty of the FPGA is that it will allow you to instill your own programming. And so if you wanted to put a watermark in there, you could watermark the image. Um, there's probably a lot of different ways to do that. But adding your own code, uh, manipulating the data stream the way you want to is something that, excuse me, you can definitely build into the pipeline. And that's one of the things we're trying to do is make this an, as open an architecture as possible to allow you to do things like that. But I, I suppose the thing that you need there is you need some authentication up front. So it, effectively you need to kind of have it, you need to have the image signed by the camera and not by the person who wrote the code for the camera, but kind of almost by you as the sensor maker. Um, I don't know. I don't know where you, where you kind of start the provenance thing, but a bit, it's an interesting set of debates anyway. I mean, I don't think it's a problem instantly, but it's going to be. Well, there is, there is header space on the, on the video frame. So there, there is potential you can sign it um, to get the chip manufacturers to do that. Unless there's a legal requirement for it, you're probably not going to get them to do that. <laughs> um, although with all the ca cameras going into to automotive production right now, uh, what they say that the next few years will be like 15 cameras on every car. For liability issues, they probably want a digital signature on every single one of them. But getting them to do that is a major change in, in what they do. Right. Right. The other, hopefully others will force that, and then it, it'll be something that over time you can take advantage of or someone can take advantage of without having to make it you know, be the point on that spear. Very cool. Um, okay, I'm going to come back to one other thing that I asked for before. I, I hope uh, maybe you haven't looked at it. Maybe you have. Um, but I just got word the other day from uh, some friends in the broadcast space who tell me that NewTek's uh, NewTek Digital Interface, or NDI, which is lightly compressed uh, video over gig E, is, uh, was about a, maybe a year ago. It was launched and uh, it's starting to make lots of waves, which is another thing going into that broadcast space of um, very lightweight kind of high bandwidth stuff. Most people won't want to deal with it because it requires giggy for even a single stream. But um, they're building modular switchers now that are just a bunch of servers with gig gigabit between them and, and hooking up. You know, cameras. So, so one server receives a bunch of streams, some over IP, some over BNC, and then away you go. Um, anyhow, I know I mentioned that before, but I'll mention it again. Uh, yeah, the problem with with Gig E when you've got a, a sensor that is um, as large as ours, you know, we're using we're using a 4K, a native 4K sensor, is that that's a lot of data that you've got to compress down. Um, at 30 frames a second, you're talking about seven and a half gigs. So you got to get that compressed till it will will fit through the Giggy pipeline. Right, and that's where things like NDI are a um, they're math. It's a mathematically lossless uh, mezzanine compression scheme that's designed to be you know built into cameras and such, so that um, you could have a normal production camera with a gigabit port on it and hose it up that way. Um, and backhaul over IP and, and do that kind of stuff, um, but it is it is compressed. So compression right compression right now is one of our our challenges. We've got an H our own H two six four compression that we've written, and it's almost done. The problem with the compression is once you compress the data, it goes into a, or you take the raw data it goes into a black box, which is your compression algorithm, and it either comes out or it doesn't. And debugging it in that middle space is very difficult because you don't know what went wrong. You know that you, you poured the data in, you know, the data streams coming out, but the video is black. I was like, okay, fine. What happened? And de debugging that in between is very, very difficult. And that's one of the challenges we're facing right now. If you guys, I mean, I realize you're somewhat down the line on the H264 um, and, and there are obvious reasons for doing that. But if you guys were interested in in doing VP9, um, I can introduce you to the people at Google who who handle that standard, and and I'm sure would be 
delighted to be involved in 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 a, a you know a nice VP9 source. If they could if they could help us implement a VP9 compression on board the camera, it's good for them because you know as you know Google owns YouTube. Right, YouTube. exactly. You and, know, and, and that's a target for a lot of your people. So you're using yes. So yeah, I mean, um, uh, you know, paint, get get. Get, get us connected if, if that sounds like something you'd like to do uh connect you know get get Randy to connect us up and i'll i'll forward that on i've no idea what their response will be but i, I but i know that they're kind of i know the web rtc people and then peripherally i know that the the um the the, v, the people who are interested in vp9 in that space and i'm i'm pretty sure i could kind of but they're all in as far as i can tell they're all in sweden so um I'll do that right now, but okay. um, I just wanted to show this because I'd like to talk a little about some of the things of the letter just because I was so impressed by it. And uh, you, you might be able to explain this image if you could. I guess you can see this, right, Rich? Well, this was the first first batch of cameras that went out into the real world. And um, if you notice on the far right, there's a gold camera. That's the only one that was ever made with that color side rails. I went to a guy named uh, Von Whiskey, who is a Twitch streamer. He is actually the one that found us and said, hey, you guys ought to build a camera for Twitch streaming. And we said, what's that? Um, he's been an amazingly fun guy to deal with. Um, and he plays a video game. I think it's called Final Fallout or Fallout 4. And uh, there's a lot of fictitious company logos and everything. So to ship him his camera, we put it in a wooden crate and boxed it up with all the logos on it from the game that he plays. And then just for fun, we spray painted it with glow-in-the-dark paint so it, as if it were radioactive, right? And DHL was, was ab is absolutely a great partner for us to work with. And I called the guy up at DHL that we work with, and I said, look, you got to warn everybody, the case is supposed to glow in the dark. <laughs> and this guy lives in Canada and they actually, they warn the drivers and then they warn the customs agent that the box coming through is supposed to glow in the dark. <laughs> oh, and you caught this. Okay. So this is the, when we demoed the camera last year at Maker Fair, uh, it was the first time we were streaming 4k. We were streaming 4k at 15 and, um, the three founders are the three of us on the left. And if you look at the logo 2R1Y, I'm the only Yankee. And then you get Serge, who's a Russian, and Vonda, who's a Russian. And then Henry is there helping us out. So the original company is, is the 2R1Y. And we're standing there in front of, the, front of our booth at Maker Faire. Okay, and if you don't mind, this is kind of an interesting way to proceed. We can kind of go through this a little bit. Oh, there you go. There's there's Vaughn's box glowing in the dark. <laughs> there you go. Okay, so I'm gonna gonna um, take a look at some of the other images, and we'll see what's happening. But if anybody has any questions, if you're on ZipDX, uh, don't hesitate to hit a star six and ask your question. I asked already on on the v, on the uh, IRC channel. Um, there's, I'm looking at the various images, trying to figure out which ones were the best, but we can go through most of them. So that was, uh, that was the first batch of cameras then. Um, what's the status then now? Where are we in, in the sort so of we built, we built process? 24, yeah, we built 24 cameras. We actually did it on a production line. So they were, they were not built in a, in a one-off proto lab. We actually built them on a full scale production line. Those cameras, um, about six of them are traveling the world right now and in the hands of industry influencers and evaluators who are coming back and telling us what they like, what they don't like, what works, what doesn't work. And then we're taking that information and we're making modifications to improve the performance. You know, nothing you build, unfortunately, doesn't, doesn't end up without a few blue wires and some issues. Fortunately, most of the hardware issues are resolved, and now we're making corrections in firmware. Uh, but that's where we are right now. We're in the kind of the final phases of getting that ready. Our biggest challenge, 
honestly, is, is I like to say is the F word, funding. And if I had funding, would be selling cameras. It, it's just plain and simple. But that's my, my challenge at the moment is to, is to raise the funding necessary to do the first production run. I think the and phase you're in now is amazing, though, because you're getting the feedback. You, by the way, I'm on a thing that you can explain in just a second. But, okay, um, yeah, leave that up. That's th- good. That that's really great because and and we've done this over the last ten years. This is ten years of the VUC. We've done this with various people. Not everybody takes advantage of it. We get a lot of feedback through the most interesting projects. Uh, why don't you go ahead and and run with this one, and then we'll we'll move on. But I've got a couple other things I'd like to talk about. Okay, so hang on. So what is the? <laughs> so I didn't actually look at uh, what this is, but I think you must know. Yeah, so what you're looking at, I was hoping to share screen, but this is perfect. So one of the things we ended up doing is when you build a camera, you then you have to build the tools to to analyze it, right, to be able to develop with it. One of the cool things was we didn't have an image pipeline expert. We were trying to do this on our own or with consultants, and we soon realized that the imaging pipeline is a huge, very complex mathematical problem that takes somebody who knows a lot about it. Years ago, I was flying back from Albuquerque, New Mexico, sitting next to a gentleman and his family, and we started talking, and I found out he worked for Aptina. It was kind of a brilliant, kind of crazy engineer, right? And... So I kept bugging Roger. I kept saying, hey, we need, you know, we need help. We need this kind of thing. And Roger said, I can't do it. I'm working for Aptina. You know, I, I, I don't have time or the, or the effort to be able to help you guys. And then about six months ago, he calls me up and says, so you still need somebody? And I said, oh, God, yes, we, we definitely need somebody like you. Um, he's the type of person that doesn't play well in a big corporate environment. And as you know, Aptina got bought by On Semiconductor. And he was looking for an area where he, a place where he could be more contribute to something and actually see his work turn into into um, results. So he came on board and started working with Igor, who's our CTO, and developing tools that allow him to to advance and and really improve the imaging pipeline. So what you're looking at is in the upper left-hand corner, there's a, there's a uh, section, and you can see the histogram. And what the histogram does is allow him to see how well the three channels are balanced. Actually, four channels are balanced in the graph below. There's some other details about in the middle section about what's going on with the camera, how many frames it's running, um, what the sample size are, you know, all the, the, the important things that he needs on the left is some of that box is something interesting that Igor wrote, and we're, we're planning to push this further. Right now, it's in kind of a, a pre-alpha stage, I guess. Uh, and that's an area, the uh, device that allows you to manually focus the camera, and it will tell you when, you're, when that region is act in focus. We don't like to use autofocus lenses because they bounce. And... So if you're asking a individual to focus their camera, you've got to give them a tool that allows them to do that. So that's exactly what we're, we've done is to give them a tool that allows them to focus, focus the camera. Down below, you'll see a thing on the white balance. That's for, for Roger to figure out, you know, okay, what's going on with, water, with white balance? What's going on with auto exposure? Um, and then in the lower right-hand section, you guys will be interested in this. This is what we call Frankie Whisperer. And, oh, God, the names that Igor comes up with. Anyway, <laughs> that comes from the fact that when we, we built the first version of this Gen 3 camera, it's a one-foot square of dev boards, and we called it Franken-Piggy. And anyway, so he nicknamed it Frankie in a long story. But the sliders you see in this image actually are dynamic controls to reprogram the image sensor. So when you change the position, say, for instance, of the red slider, it goes out and goes and through I squared C 
reprograms the image sensor and changes the values inside a bank of registers which control the gains for that specific color channel. And further, you, obviously I didn't have it in here, but you can actually reprogram the image sensor itself. There's about a thousand 8-bit registers. Uh, and we give you the ability to launch batch codes into the um, into the sensor itself and reprogram the, the functions of that sensor. So is this, forgive the interruption, is, is this if I had you know, an array of cameras that I was using in a multi-camera installation, is this how I would color match the cameras then? Yes, um, it would allow you to color match the cameras. You can time, you can control the timing of the cameras that way. You can control the aspect, you can control the region of interest of the camera. So you could go in there and say, you know, crop this, this area within the image. Um, there's a lot of different things. Most of it comes down to timing, pixel timing. And so then is it, is it like black, is it like, you know, you know, black levels, white levels, gammas, that kind of stuff. I'm thinking the usual kind of thing that what, what, what a TV person calls a shader would do with the CCU. Yeah. When, when you got, you're at a football game, you got to get all the cameras loaded up. I don't think that works at the sensor level though. I think that works behind the sensor. Well, we actually, yeah, we actually push it down to the sensor. So you could, you could theoretically, you could color match every single sensor together Mm -hmm. um, because you have the ability to get down that deep. And as we were talking before the, the, um, the session started, we like to make as many changes as far down the pipeline as possible. So we're looking to get, onto the sensor itself before it's demosaiced and make any of the corrections there as opposed to making them post. And I broke it mm-hmm. up again. This thing keeps freezing That's my videos. Okay. I'll, 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 keep, I'll keep talking. You know, I, I'm not sure that you have any interest uh, or you, you're, you're fairly way down this pro- process, but there's an area in television or, or film and production, I guess, um, that might be relative, and that is um, the technology involved in uh, flying spot scanners, or what they used to be flying spot scanners. And now they're did uh, what do they call them? Data cines. Um, the way we used to get film to tape or film to video um, is wrapped up in a lot of all the same kind of imaging stuff, because it's sort of the most demanding side of broadcast and film production, and that is all done in LA. <laughs> So it's funny. I, I, I see the inset picture there of, of troll snot, and and you were talking <laughs> about controls that are on the camera. So so our biggest delay this year is when we got the documentation for the sensor. There were a whole bunch of functions that were documented, well documented. We're talking you know an inch thick set of documents that said you know here's first of all where defective pixels are handled. And every camera has defective pixels. I mean, it's just the nature of digital cameras, right? Mm-hmm. And so there was, for us, the big problem is not the dead ones, it's the hot ones, because they end up looking like troll snot. And so, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, when, when you're a small startup, you know, things get really bizarre nicknames. I'm sorry. But, you know, that movie was coming out. There was this blast of troll snot. So it got tagged as called Hot, hot Pixels, referred to as troll snot. And so it was supposed to be on the on the chip. And so when we activated those registers and went looking for the locations of all the defective pixels, nothing was there. All the re- memory registers were blank. Got in touch with the manufacturer and said, hey, you know, what, what's going on here? It's not working. And they said, oh, well, that's not implemented on this chip. Neither was auto exposure, <laughs> auto white balance. None of it was. And so we Send me another up- chip. <laughs> well... <laughs> Yeah, you, you know, we've spent a year developing around this chip. You know, it's like, one says it's right there, and now we're ready to use it, and it's not there. You know, what do you do? So take a big step back and say, okay, so how are we going to do this? So we ended up having to write our own uh, defective pixel cancellation, which now, which now um, basically self-calibrates every time you turn the camera on. When you turn the camera on the first frame or two, which you will never see, is used to do its own dynamic pixel cancellation which is actually better than a regular camera because a regular camera only does it when the chip leaves the factory. 
And there's actually buttons if you have a DLSR that will allow you to put the lens cap on and actually recalibrate the defective pixels. So what we do is we do that every time you turn the camera on, it runs through process and says, okay, where are my bad pixels? I'm gonna I'm gonna map those and take those out. Uh, auto exposure, a gamma, white balance, none of those functions that were documented actually work. So we've been writing our own algorithms that then run on the FPGA that handle all of that. And that's not in has not been an insignificant task. It's been a major major portion of, of what we've been doing this last year. And when I look at it, I read an article that Apple has 800 engineers that work on the imaging pipeline. We have two. <laughs> <laughs> well, I saw that yeah. t- Tim, uh, the CEO of Apple, uh, has a 15% reduction in his salary because they did not meet expectations of the market. Well, you know, um, you could cut my salary 15% and I wouldn't notice it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Anyway, what is this? Oh, that's a, that's a front shot of our camera shot with our camera. So Serge is, um, he was the big guy in the middle of that picture that you, you showed to the group. He is adamant that whenever we do, um, a picture that, on our website that we always shoot it with our own camera. So there's no it's called dog fooding, baby dog fooding. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We won't, you know, we don't like to use, um, you know, and unless it's absolutely necessary or something that we can't manage. Um, we like to use our own, our own camera to do our own work. There's surge. There's the setup of our camera, taking a picture of our camera. And, uh, so, you know, we're, we're very much, you know, try to be realistic and, and honest about what we do. And we're hoping that that translates into people being patient with us taking a while. It's interesting in the back. So in the middle camera, you can see up above it in the background is a glass box, actually a plexiglass box. That is what we call the Pope mobile. That is the, the first version of this gen three. It's uh, encased in plastic so that it doesn't get damaged. In uh, the slightest movement causes it to to freak out. But it's our reference board, so we we use that quite often to make sure that the the camera that we have here is replicating the, the quality of the image we get out of that one. And that's about Sweet. the last image from the newsletter that I think is appropriate. But um, if there's anything else, let me know and I'll look for it. I just, I just happened to do it that way. It's the first time I've ever done this, but it seems like it worked. I hope I didn't put any inappropriate pictures on the uh, newsletter. <laughs> well, I didn't show, I didn't show those. <laughs> anyway, first of all, any questions? I got to get back to my uh, cam. There we go. Any questions from anybody? Welcome. And um, otherwise, I just think that the whole feedback thing and the idea of people who actually have uses for this contacting you is a good one. I'm pretty sure that Michael and I both are on the list. Michael, did you sign up for this? I think you did. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, assuming that we would never. <laughs> that was, No, <laughs> let me stop. I didn't I, mean let's, to... let's put it this way. I have, I have such a diversity of webcams around me that there's no way I'm not getting one of these when they become available. There you go. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't mean to think that it would never come out. What I was going to say is that we probably never would have to pay for it, but <laughs> that's just being well, probably too honest. I don't know. We don't know, there, we don't know much about the pricing. Go ahead. Uh, in, the, in, the production, in, the, in the first production run, which we're aiming to build about 2,500 of these, uh, there is a number that are set aside to go to people like yourself who are industry influencers and people who can give us good feedback. Some will be traveling. uh, Some will be permanent where they go. Uh, I know that we're working with one of the videographers from the Nautilus. We'd like to send, you know, put a camera in a bottle and send it down 4,000 meters. Um, So there are a lot of applications we don't expect to see the camera come back. And then somewhere, you know, it's got more stamps on its passport than I do. So. I have a friend uh, who's uh, mm -hmm. working, he has a company called Future Video, and they just came out with a 
what they do in brief is multi-camera input. So you're streaming an event and you switch between cameras and stuff, but then you also have all the shots ready to go uh, and you can then do a post-production with all of the stuff. And um, I should probably introduce you as well. I'm not 100% sure. That would be HDMI stuff or what's the other standard of wired. But um, you should probably know each other anyway, so we'll try to make that happen. There's one thing that's it's interesting that Igor is looking into, and that is that USB allows for multi-resolution simultaneous streaming. And so that you can flip back and forth between resolutions while you're streaming. And it's something that we don't do right now, but we have the ability to to manage that and something we're definitely looking into. Got to say that one of the reasons, you know, we talked many, many times about why we're using YouTube, why we, we could use, we could be using Jitsi Video Bridge, we could be on Facebook, we could be on a thousand things. One of the things that YouTube does really well, or at least it does, <laughs> is this multi-resolution thing. I, I don't recall what they call that, but it means that while we're live here, you could be theoretically looking at lots of different devices. And doing that yes. on the fly is non-trivial, and you probably need Google's budget to do it. Uh, the rest of technology, when you're not live, is a whole different story. But anyway. Yeah, streaming uh, on... Streaming on um, Hangouts is, is... I was trying to think of the analogy, and it's sort of like like being invited to test drive your your new Ferrari um, at the end of a one block long cul-de-sac in a school zone, right? You know, it's, you know, it's, we can stream, we can stream 4k at close. We didn't quite make 30, 30 frames a second yet, but we can stream 4k at close to 30 frames a second right now. And, you know, hangouts is 720p. I mean that's that's sad. You know? <laughs> well, at the same time, they do have uh, this the 360 thing, which I've looked at uh, YouTube 360 Live. You know that Hangouts are pretty much separated from YouTube. The only thing is that we are talking on a Hangout right now. We could also Michael or myself. We could be inter. We could be injecting video, and I think you can do 1080p on on YouTube. I think you, maybe you even four, 4K. You can do you can do 4K yeah. at. 30 on YouTube, which is why we've developed the camera to run at 4K at 30, which is, uh, you know, is not an insignificant amount of data to to get over USB. Yeah, what, I mean, well, skipping USB for a second, what is the bandwidth requirement? Do either of you know, Michael or you would know, uh, to, to talk uh, 4K? Because I think we're talking in 1080p, I think you're talking about, Two and a half two and a half megs, megabits per second, right? Uh, upload. Well, so, it, it depends on it depends on uh, a, a lot of factors, but you're talking about delivery um, or transmission, which is quite a bit different from production. Because if you're presumably the things that people are wanting to do with this camera will tend towards the higher quality, maybe uncompressed stuff. So when you're saying 4K, Rich, you mean like, okay, 4K, is that H.264 or is that YUI2 or something like that? I mean, you're going uncompressed to the host, right? So YUI2, you can just squeak um, 4K at 30 frames a second over USB. And, and that's USB 3, right? That's USB 3.1. Yes, and um, so one of the things that we built into this is the ability to, oh, it still didn't pick up. Hang on a second. Yeah, we're, we're missing something here, and I think it's called video. Yeah, hang on. Okay, there we go, and there we go. There we go. There Back. we go. So, sorry about that. Um, you know, at, at, at 4K at 30 frames a second, 8-bit color, you're looking at a raw image of about 7.5 gig. And that's a ton of data to compress. You've got about 3.5 optimally going over uh, USB 3, although it claims to be 5. It really doesn't work well at 5. And it's not that it can't transmit over the USB. It's all the rest of the stuff inside on the, on the 
um, host platform that has difficulty handling that much data. But then you look at your output stream and, you know, what are you going to upload at? You know, if you're going to broadcast this live, you know, what is your what is your upload bandwidth? Maybe it's 50 megs, right? So we've developed the, the ability to dynamically control the compression. So as your stream has more upload bandwidth, you can reduce the compression, have a higher quality image. As that bandwidth reduces, say you're broadcasting, it's the end of the day and everybody comes home in your neighborhood and all the kids are in the house and they're downloading their videos and whatever and your, and your upload bandwidth drops, then you can change the compression algorithm, the, the, the factors that, that drive compression and control your bit rate on the upload stream. And this is important for a lot of people who are doing game streaming, who are doing live video broadcasting, is the ability to have either the user or the platform control the compression. What what does YouTube I mean YouTube's got to have some kind of a cap on what you can upload. They can't just accept you know any any we, data rate, don't they? Well, for for video, we found that they're pretty good at um, compressing huge files. I mean, we we've uploaded massive files to to YouTube and thought it was going to crash, and it can it takes a while to churn through it, but it'll compress it down. It have, they have their own compression for recorded video. For live streaming, I think they figure that if you get it over the if you get it over the upload bandwidth, they can handle it. You know that that isn't where the where the bottleneck is. The bottleneck is that plug between you and the wall. And that's where you're so if I, but if I've so but if I've got a fiber service here from there's an independent fiber provider that'll give me gigabit. If I can pass them, you know, two hundred and fifty meg, they'll they'll take it? That I don't know. We we're not so fortunate here yet. <laughs> Try it and see, Michael. It'd be interesting to know. Yeah. Well, I that that particular fiber provider, they are literally um know, twenty-four blocks from my house. But the cost to pull the fiber over to my house is prohibitive. So, well, just drag it along the street and run it along, hang it over the fences. And <laughs> yeah, there yeah. Was, there, there are there are high bandwidth providers starting to become available here. So we'll we'll get we'll get over a hundred megabit one day soon. But yeah, Sonic here. Sonic is coming in here in San Francisco, and I've seen their trucks around, but I've yet to see them actually in our neighborhood here. So Michael, you want so, um, you want a point to point link that runs uh, that runs you know Wi-Fi point to point link that runs between you and the and the furthest outreach of their fiber. And I have been looking at that, but the geography makes it difficult uh, because it's an older neighborhood with a lot of mature trees. But I yeah, I would definitely have like a ubiquity um, point to point link if if that opportunity presented itself. Right. Um, in any event, um, what about things like MJPEG? Does MJPEG, I mean, you can achieve reasonable compression. You can get, what, 16, 20 to 1 easily without too much CPU burden. Is that something that's, that, that you get involved in, Richard? Well, you remember, we're, we're doing this on the FPGA, so we're limited. Right. We're making a very stripped-down version of the code. And so right. what we did is we looked at what's the, what's the most universally accepted right now, and right now it's, it's going with the H.264. Um, once we get that done... And working, knock on wood, very shortly, um, that we can look at other compression algorithms to... Altera, to Altera has some sample code. I'm not sure if you're using Altera, but they have some sample yet. code for MJPEG. Yeah. Um, Altera. My former employer used it. And how did it work? How, would they, how, how were, they, were they pleased with it? Yeah, no, no. We we had a product, or they have a product. It's 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 about to be retired. In fact, it's an FPGA based um, thing. It's FPGA with an array of DSPs, and they take um, sixteen streams of uh, 1080p 30 uh, in and out, and they ha they do it all um, to and from MJPEG. Um, wow! Through 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 a single FPGA, it's actually uh, eight four two two four streams. Okay. So uh, it's for a, a live-to-air graphics box that will, you know, be compositing backgrounds and then foreground layers and then font and then other things. All and it's all done by FPGA with some DSP support. So why are they retiring it? It seems like now would be 
a time that it would become even more popular. Um, market realities are that that kind of dedicated hardware system in the broadcast space, nobody wants to pay for anymore. Things are going towards software things software and platforms, more, yeah. And and and, G, and GPU accelerated stuff on on Windows and whatnot. So because that box was a single a single channel of it uh, was forty thousand dollars. Oh uh, yeah, that's out of the price price range of most people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, it wasn't. You know, in your in your neck of the woods, I installed twelve of them at KPIX, uh, but that was five six years ago. And when KPIX yeah. went digital. They went, you know, I did all the graphics side of that. So anyway, um, it's all very good. Um, but that MJ big code was pretty good. So if you're, and, and they make it available to you without licensing it. That's even better. Yeah. That's the yeah, problem we, I've, that we had with all that FPGA stuff was the sample code carried hefty license costs. One of the problems we found with our, with the, the vendor we're using right now for the FPGA is that, you know, they have a two hour lockout. So at the end of two hours, everything would die and you'd have to reboot the system. And so we ended up having to rewrite all the internal code that normally comes with the FPGA um, to get around that. Because if not, the license fees were, were insanely expensive. And, you know, I, they think they, they sort of point you in that direction, you know, say, here's something that works. Uh, and if you want to, if you want to use it, you know, in a, in a, produced commercial product, you're going to pay us a lot for it. And we found that with our own MIPI code. Uh, there's a company that makes the MIPI deserializing code. That alone, I think the base license was $50,000. And then you start paying for, for the upload systems after that. It was very expensive. So we wrote our own. We've been writing all our own internal code because you know, from a, from a startup standpoint, I can't afford to be paying hundreds of thousands of dollars in licensing for 24 cameras. It doesn't make sense. Uh, the other thing we found too, is that oftentimes people who make the FPGAs will say, Oh, here's a code that does this. And it does, but it's not optimized or it comes with a ton of extra things you don't need. It's not been, been optimized. And it's more of a proof of concept. Yes, you can do this on our FPGA, but it's not a, here's a really tight little module that you can plug into the firmware and it runs beautifully. Most of the, the stuff we found that they give you as samples is sort of like, yeah, this is just to prove you can do this with our FPGA, but it's really not a good working piece of code. And it probably probably uses more slice of the silicon than you're willing to commit to that function. So, you know, every bit of real estate is, is precious to us. Every, you know, every amount of energy, you know, bit of energy we use, everything we churn, you know, it all gets down to, you know, how much power you have to put into the camera, how much heat you have to suck out of it. Um, you know, right now it's got the FPGA runs about 70 C the um, top plate, when you're really cranking it, runs about 50C. So we're looking at doing a slight mod to the top plate to get the temperature down because it won't burn you, but we don't want it that hot. So we've got to get the top plate because we're passively cooled. Um, yeah, heat is the enemy. It is. And so you start with any electronic design. One of the, th- one of the most important things you do is you start with the heat. You know, start with the thermal aspects. How am I going to design this thing to get the heat out? Now, if you're if you're actively cooled, that's great because you have ability to move heat and and reduce the the internal temperature quickly. With this camera being passively cooled because of the onboard mics and the environment that we want it to be in, you got to be able to get rid of that heat. And passive cooling is is critical. So. We partnered with a company called PSC, uh, and they did all the thermal engineering. I can show it off. I love this. That is the SODIM cooler, the big chunk of aluminum that sucks the the heat off the bank of SODIMs we have and takes it to the side rails and and keeps the keeps the memory cool. Um, impressive little design. Um, beautiful beautiful work done by these guys. Speaking of noise. Um, 
what's the basic expected noise performance of the sensor itself? Like if I'm an astronomer, I'm going to be concerned about that, aren't I? Forgive you me, are. I'm at the edge of that. <laughs> and you're gonna and you're gonna you're gonna ask me what the what the signal to noise ratio is. I don't know it off off the top of my head, but it is on our um, it is on our website under specifications. Uh, we list the we list the uh, signal to noise ratio that is um, published for that the particular sensor we're using. We're also looking at doing some modifications. This is part of what we're going through. We're working with uh, right now with Intel's Power Systems Group. And there's a there's a slight background noise that it, that we noticed, and they think that they can reduce that by giving us a better engineered um, power supply to the camera chip itself. Sort of reduces some of the dark, the, not the dark current, but the the background hum that exists um, there, which usually gets filtered out long before a person ever sees it. But for an astronomy you know, you're dealing with things in very low light. You're dealing with things where you really want to push the sensitivity to the edges. And when you do that, when you start pushing the sensitivity, what you start seeing is that you're pushing the noise level as well. Uh, 36.4 dB maximum yeah. signal to noise. There you go. Okay. Yeah, I don't memorize all the numbers on all the specs. There's <laughs> too many things to, to I'm stick just, in my, I'm my just head. looking it up. Yeah. And, okay. and you know, it, yeah. It, it, go ahead. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, who can... <laughs> What is the uh, frequency of the horizontal sync of a TV set? Who can remember that? Three point? No? Three, or that's three, actually, three, that's a color burst, right? What's a color burst? Who, quick, yeah. Who's the first person who can type that in or say it? <laughs> NTSC? I'm sorry, NTSC? That's, we're trying to keep to 21st century topics here. 3.5945. Okay. <laughs> da, 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 da. okay. Any you know, questions you, you know, Rich, that he, he lives in the land of CCAM, right? So, hey, no, you know, no, uh, it's but all wait, wait. Now. I will, I will say this though. I will say this. There is a, there is a, I deal with a lot of young entrepreneurs in their twenties, right? And they fail to look backwards in time to see what's come before. And, and we don't, we're more of an old, older bunch of people. And, and our optics guy is hilarious, James. <clears throat> He's always pulling stuff out of out of the past. And we find that solutions for our problems oftentimes exist in in very, very old applications. One of the things we were trying to do is develop a lens for streamers where you have a long depth of field and a very close range. Two things that are contra in optics. You don't they don't like to 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 do that. He found a methodology that was developed a hundred years ago for doing just that. And it's disappeared, right? No one, no one does that because everything's digital and, and all this stuff. So we made up a bunch of, of adapters for our lenses. And lo and behold, we were able to greatly extend the depth of field in short regions um, like less than a meter, uh, we were able to almost double the length of of the the depth of field. He went backwards in time and figured out how to you know that somebody had done that kind of research before and the solution that they had come up with. So we always like to go backwards and look and see what's going on in the world. I tease people that that are in the VR world, right? Oh, we've got an Oculus headset. This is fabulous. Here's a, here's a trivia question for you. When was the first time that concept was introduced to the public? Oh, it's got to be like way back when in the um, like preview master stereograph days. That's a long, long time ago. 1848 at the Paris World's Fair. That same concept hasn't changed since then. Yes, the delivery mechanism has changed. But the basic physics and concept of a stereoscope is the same thing. So looking backwards, one can see that there are technologies that were developed that have really great solutions to problems today that people forget to, I mean, they're trying to reinvent them or to make or cover them up with software. Um, 
we always find that it's better to have a hardware solution or an optic solution before you start trying to fix something by manipulating it with software. Fix it first at the, you know, make a really quality image, fix the problems at the, at, at the hardware, the optics level, and then use the software for only doing the fine tuning at the, at the very tail end of the pipeline. Let's remind people that they should go to sub two. Oh boy. Sub R2, sub two R. Sub two R. Sub two, I knew. Sub two R. I knew I had it right the first time. Sub two R.com to uh, contact these folks and also to maybe sign up for the list. Certainly you want to sign up for the mailing because it's, they don't overdo it. It's not like 20 times a week. It's uh, how, what is it? It's not even monthly, actually. It's just when something happens, right? When, so, when something happens or I, or I realize that it's been too long and, and, and I need to keep people, people reminded that we're still alive and we're still moving forward on this stuff, then I will send them a, I will send it, uh, an update. I try to keep them short. Um, I try to keep them informative um, and basically to be honest about where we are and what we're doing. I think that's the most important for us is to be, is transparency. I you think know. you fulfilled all of those things, Rich. Um, what city are you located in, in case I feel like I want to have a little wanderlust and I'm in California? <laughs> so we're in San Francisco. Um, I've heard of our, that. Yeah. <laughs> our, um, we're actually operating out of our chairman's house. She has a beautiful house in the Inner Sunset District. And she said, why, why should we pay for rent south of market when I have space? So it's basically three stories. <laughs> the upper level, we have... Some rooms converted to offices. I'm on the main floor in a room we converted to a lab. And then down below, we have a, a small machine shop for doing, you know, making making small parts and things like that. Our, um, our image pipeline guy is in Hayward. Our hardware engineer is in Ohio. Our optics guy is in Florida. And Igor, God knows where Igor is. He was in... Prague. He was then in Kiev. Then he went to Poltov. Then he came back here. Then he went to Munich. And so I said, you know, I asked him, I said, Igor, where are you? He goes, find me on Skype. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> that's great. So we're, wherever he is, that's where he is. So that's okay. basically my question was more that I'll be in California next year at some point, And I was curious where you were. But uh, anyway, everybody uh, reach out. Reach so out. I can understand why you have a strong relationship with DHL. Um, like all your, oh, yes. all your parts must fly around constantly between those people. There you go. DH, DHL, just a side note, DHL has been amazing. They, they, they've met with us and they've said, look, you know, we believe in what you're doing. We think that we want to be a part of that. And we're going to help you when you're ready to ship around the world. They've given us this like one price anywhere in the world for our camera. Uh, they bend over backwards for us. They're there to help us at, at all stages of the game. And we have this with a number of, of partners. I don't even call them suppliers or vendors. I call them partners uh, that have just been amazing people to work with. And I, I thoroughly enjoy that part of, you know, being in a startup. The rest of it sucks. You know, I'm just, there's nothing, there's no glory and no, no glamour in being in a startup, but the relationships you build with people, Aero distribution, the people that make our lenses, Epitar, in uh, the people who make our image sensors, the people who make the housing. I mean, they all have just gone way above and beyond what any normal sane person would do to help us out. And and I'm in, you know thankful that we have those kinds of relationships, or we wouldn't be here. We couldn't we couldn't make it. Okay, well, this has been. So an there is one question on uh, IRC that uh, I don't think has been asked, oh. um, and uh, but it's a bit subjective in a way. And it's what's the min? It's from Ski Bum, and what is the minimum lux for a decent color image? I didn't see that. I, I don't it know. I find decent. Sorry, but, Derek, uh, I didn't see it. So, so it all depends on on the sensor itself. You know, basically. We, we look at the world as collecting photons, like collecting, you know, drops of water. If you have a, a bigger bucket and that bucket is out, is open longer, you co collect more photons. I mean, it all gets down to how many photons you can collect in a period of time. This particular sensor is, 
uh, 1.4 micron architecture. Our 720p camera is 3.75 micron architecture, so significantly better in capturing um, photons. So the the answer is it depends on on you know, and a lot depends on your lens. If you have a fast lens, if you have a large pixel architecture, then you need less light. If you have a small lens, small pixel architecture, high frame rate, less less photons. I mean, it's 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 pretty much a balancing act. Um, so that's a, that is a very subjective and difficult question to answer without some more specifics. Well, I like to terminate with the declaration Fiat Lux. <laughs> And uh, this has been VUC 627, if I'm not mistaken. We've been going for 10 years. It seems like 10 years this session for you, Rich, right? Uh, yeah, 100 years. <laughs> <laughs> but this has been Richard Newman. He's a great guy, a great guest. And we're going to have you back before next year, before 2018, because I know you're, you folks are going to do great things. And you've got your worldwide team. you got DHL hitting for you. And now you got the VUC hitting for you. Hey, that was the bleeding edge of the IP communications and VoIP community. We're at VUC.me on the web. Thanks to Simwood.com, who can turn you as a developer into a telco. Our host at PBX is provided by OnSIP.com. The site at VUC.me is on Bluehost.com. We use ZipDX.com for our wideband, full-featured conference bridge. And our local rate dial-ins are from Voxbone.com. Every Friday, 12 noon Eastern Time, see you next week.